the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, we see Saul in the middle of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 9, verse 6. Once again, that's Acts chapter 9, verse 6. For in verse 6, we see Saul here, and he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And here is Saul's conversion. This is his conversion experience. See, he knew the person he was talking to was the Lord, And now the Lord reveals that it is Jesus. And now for him to say, Jesus, Lord, what would you have me to do? You don't say that unless you believe the man who's talking to you. Right here is Saul's conversion. He doesn't have a prayer. He doesn't have some type of an experience where he goes through the four steps of the gospel. None of that happens here. What it is is simple repentance. Before, I didn't like you. And now you're my Lord. It's that simple. Repentance and faith right there. I thought the way I was going was fine. Now it's not. Now what do you want me to do? Before you weren't Lord, before you were some guy I was trying to stamp out. Now you're Lord. Faith, repentance, salvation in a nutshell. Trembling and astonished, Lord, what would you have me to do? Again, some translations omit this here, but he corroborates his response in Acts 22.10 where he says this, Lord, what will you have me to do? And Saul would not to continue to call him Lord if he did not make a choice to believe. What would you have me to do? <laughs> what better response is there from a new believer than that? Lord, what do you want me to do? Obedience. Saul's conversion is fascinating. The Lord says unto him, arise and go into the city and it shall be told you what you must do. But Saul's conversion leaves us with a few thoughts concerning salvation. First off, at its core, salvation is something God does in us. We respond to his work in us. He is the instigator and initiator, right? The Bible says that while we were in our sin, Christ died for us, right? He initiated. He was the first actor, and it is our job to respond to what he has done. But secondly, Jesus, I love this. He finds us even when we are not looking for him. Praise God, right? How many of us were looking for him? How many Christians do you know? Oh, I was just looking for Jesus, and I wandered into a church and found him. No, the Bible says there are none that seeks after God. There's none that searches for God. And then he comes down and he finds us. I had a professor at college who said, Jesus stormed the citadel of my heart and he took me captive. I love that. Because that's what he did. I wasn't looking for him. I was doing my own thing. 
going my own way. The Bible says all we'd like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. I was fine living life, whatever. And then life pulled the carpet out from underneath me. And Jesus came and he found me. In John chapter 9, remember the story of the man who was born blind and he was healed. And then when he's brought for testimony, they excommunicated him. One of my favorite parts of all of scriptures is Jesus found him. He went and he searched for him and he found him. Cast off by the world, cast off by those who should have been defending him, should have been upholding him, should have been helping him. Cast off and Jesus goes and he finds him. Jesus leaves the 99 to go find that one. And at some point in our life, you and I, each one of us, if you're saved today, you were that one, right? He went and he found you and he brought you back. Praise God. But thirdly, in the end, our salvation, true salvation, is a confrontation with the person of Jesus over our sin and rebellion against him, even the sins which are done ignorantly. It is not a confrontation with church. It's not a confrontation with other believers. It is a confrontation with Jesus himself. We are not brought unto an organization. We are brought unto God Almighty. Have you responded to that confrontation? Maybe today the Lord is reaching out to you, touching you, and he's dealing with that issue of sin and rebellion, of going your own way. And you may even be protesting, saying, but I didn't know. I wasn't trying to be bad. And the Lord says, but we have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. There could be no relationship with Jesus until there is the question of why. Why are you doing this? We need to make this right. You know, if I get into an argument with my wife or if I mistreat my wife, things are not just going to be okay on their own. I need to go to her. I need to apologize. I need to say I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And our relationship with God is no different. We cannot just ignore, oh, I believe God's good and he'll forgive. Agreed. But you think you can have a relationship with anybody where you just ignore how you've mistreated them, ignore what you've done to them and just go on with the relationship and think it'll be meaningful at all? None of us can do that. Those issues have to be addressed. They have to be talked about. It's one of the hardest things in a marriage. Most of the time we don't address it. We don't talk about it. We just pretend, well, they'll understand or they'll forgive or whatever. We would never do that in our work environment and expect that everybody be okay with it. And yet the one that you wake up to in the morning, you lean over to, we think it'll just go away. Jesus said, arise and go into the city and it shall be told you what you must do. And so the men which journeyed with him, they stood speechless hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Acts 26, 14 states that Paul's entourage fell to the ground also, but then they got back up. And when they got back up, they heard the voice speaking, but they didn't understand the words that were spoken in Hebrew. And that left them speechless. I mean, wouldn't you be if you were there? I mean, all of a sudden this crack of lightning and this bright light, now you hear a voice, you don't see a person, but you hear the voice and you don't understand it. And now all of a sudden, the guy in charge who's ready to drag people off in chains back to Jerusalem, he's suddenly blind and very contrite. What do you say? Sometimes in situations where God is working in someone's heart, you don't need to say anything. Sometimes when someone's going through difficulty, you just grab their hand and you cry with them. As Christians, we feel like we have to have something to say all the time right? I've got, I've got to say something. How can I help him? You know, 
Some of the best times of ministry is when I've just laid my head in my wife's lap and she's let me cry and just held my hand, knowing that she loves me and know that she's with me. You see, that's not very manly. Tough. The Bible says Jesus sweat great drops of blood and his agony is emotional agony over us. And so it says, and Saul arose from the earth. I'm so glad he didn't stay there. I'm so glad he got up in obedience. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And there he was three days without sight, neither did he eat nor the drink. Saul rose in obedience, but he also rose in faith because he couldn't see. And Jesus had given him no word that his sight would be restored yet. He had no promise that that would happen. And so he goes into the city, he's led into the hand. Wasn't that fascinating? He's probably in his mind going to come in with all sorts of aggression and pomp and circumstance and meet the leaders of Damascus and hand them those letters and be like, here I come, Christians. And now he's walked in by the hand. And it mentions that he did not eat or drink for three days. Fasting was a common practice for the Pharisees, so Saul wouldn't be a stranger to that. However, this time the fast would be more than a self-righteous ritual. He was praying, seeking God for wisdom and insight, no doubt rethinking his entire life, running through the scriptures. Can you imagine what it was like now having been confronted by Jesus and now thinking about Isaiah 53 or other messianic passages, Psalm 27, Psalm 110. Now you say fasting, what is that? Well, fasting is something we probably don't do enough. You know, if, if I were to take a poll today, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have fasted probably would not be a whole lot of us. So what is fasting? What is this idea of fasting? Well, I've heard about fasting and this whole idea of not eating. I don't like it. The concept of fasting is when you are fasting, what you're doing is you're telling your flesh, you're telling your body, no, you don't call the shots today. I need to hear from the Lord and I'm making it clear. I don't want any of your input right now. And one of the great things is every time your tummy rumbles and you think, I'm hungry, that's a reminder to pray about whatever it is that you're seeking God about. Before, lose my reward now, but before I came here, me and Bev both spent time, now she loses her reward, we both spent time fasting and praying and seeking God because I needed to hear from God. I need to know what you are saying to me. And, and the problem is, is there's a lot of noise in life and the flesh likes to get in the way. Well, I like this, or I don't want to do this. And so when you fast, what you're saying is, no, you're not in charge. In fact, you're on the bottom. The Spirit's in charge, and I need to hear from Him right now. And so every time you start to rumble, that's just a reminder for me to pray and ask the Lord to speak to me. Well, verse 10, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. <laughs> Most of us probably would have fallen over dead. I, I would have thought, I'm not eating whatever I ate last night again. But a certain disciple, it doesn't say a certain pastor, it doesn't say a certain priest or a, a certain leader in the church, an apostle, or it just says a certain disciple, a learner, a follower at Damascus. And in particular, the language here describes that he's a man who lived in Damascus. He's not a Christian who has fled to Damascus, which means he's probably a newer believer since the gospel has come to him. 
So he's no leader, no one who's in charge, no one of consequence in the sense of everyone would know who Ananias is, except that Paul says in Acts 26 or 22, I don't remember, but that he was a a man who had a good reputation amongst the Jews. He was a godly man. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision. The word there means an event in which something appears vividly and credibly to the mind, though it is not actually present. You see something, but not with your eyes. You see it with your mind. We know this because the same word will be used where the Lord says that Saul had a vision of a man named Ananias coming to him and praying for him. We'll see that in just a few verses. Well, Saul can't see, right? He's blind, so it's not something he sees with his physical eyes. It's something that your mind all of a sudden sees. So Ananias, he has this supernatural experience where the mind can vividly see, and he hears the voice of the Lord, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. I love it that the Lord says, Ananias. Isn't it awesome that the Lord knows your name? He knows exactly who you are. In fact, he has a special name for you. You don't get to find it out until you get to heaven. He has a new name for you, each one of us. He says here, I am here, Lord. That was the same response Samuel had when God called out to him. Do you make yourself available with this response when God is teaching you things in his word, when he's speaking to you? Behold, I am here. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prays. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. The street that is called Straight, most of the streets and cities of this era and that culture were narrow lanes that ran crookedly between houses. But this one was one the Greeks designed when they conquered that area, and it actually still runs in a direct line from the eastern to the western gate of the city of Damascus. You can go there today, and you can see it there. Tradition holds that the home that Saul was at is on the western side, but we don't know that for sure. And it says that he is there praying. Paul was used to ritual prayers, (laughs) This may be the very first time he actually talked to God. you fathom that? They had prayers for everything. They had prayers for birthdays. They had prayers for holy days. They had prayers for every situation, unique prayers he prayed every single day. And this was probably the first time that he had actually talked to God. And God talked back. (laughs) For it said he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Each of these words, arise, Go, inquire. They're all in the imperative in the Greek, which means they are God's command to Ananias. And yet, can we blame Ananias for being a bit concerned in his response? Verse 13. And Ananias answered, Lord, um, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. I think it might be a good idea to keep him blind. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on your name. (laughs) I have heard... By many, how many Christians had fled to Damascus for safety? Probably a lot. And he says, I have heard how much evil he has done to your saints. It's possible that Ananias was concerned for his personal safety, but it's also possible that Ananias didn't want to go to help an evil man. Either way, though, God commands him to go. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, go your way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's a chosen vessel unto me. The word there means an instrument of choice, a choice instrument. 
Isn't it wonderful to realize that he chose you and me to use for his special purposes, that you are a special instrument in his hand? Isn't that awesome? You are uniquely loved by God, not just loved by God, but uniquely and personally loved by God. And yet notice what we are an instrument to first. He is a chosen vessel unto who? Unto me, the Lord says. Your first ministry is always to Jesus. He's much more interested in you than anything you can do for him. That's the most important ministry that all of us have. Go your way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name, to inform in the presence of Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel concerning my name. And here we see God's call on Saul's life, and we see it in priority. His first priority was to spread God's name to the Gentiles. Paul will later call himself the apostle to the Gentiles. Secondly, he was to spread God's name to government authorities. Paul would eventually preach the gospel to Caesar Nero himself. And lastly, he was to spread God's name to his own people. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that this is in friction for Paul. This is a challenge for him. Paul felt it was most important for him to go to the Jew first. He'll say that all throughout his letters, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And he said that because he considered himself to be uniquely equipped to answer their questions. I know all the objections, he thought. I've been there. I understand the mindset. I know where they're coming from. And yet his greatest influence would be among the Gentiles. And this conflict that he held in his heart, that he had a passion for his own people. In Romans 9, he actually says that he would be accursed. He would go to hell if it meant all of his countrymen could be saved. Have you ever loved anybody that much? Not me. But this passion had a continuous conflict because he was always on the constant search for that perfect moment where he'd get to address his people and they'd come back to God and yay, mission accomplished. And against God's warnings, he found that opportunity in Acts 22, and it led to his imprisonment for almost three years, so much so that Paul was depressed. And the Lord had to come to him and said, Paul, be of good cheer. I'm not done yet. You're going to Rome. And there in that cell, Rome? He revived. Rome? All right, Lord, let's do it. I'm sure he thought, I blew it, I blew it. I thought I was the unique guy, the one guy who would get through to these people because I understand the mentality. And so often we can make the same mistake. However uniquely equipped or gifted we might think we ought to do a certain task for God, those things aren't necessarily what God wants us to do. God often puts us in the place where we have to be most dependent upon him. And can you think of any place that would be more out of place than Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of the Pharisees? bringing the gospel to a bunch of pork eaters? I can't. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. How could Paul spread God's name to all these places? Through lots of difficult experiences. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 with me real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says in verses 3 through 6, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual or working in the enduring of the same afflictions which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation 
and your salvation. Paul says, all of this stuff that we went through, it was for your benefit. So, so you could receive the good news of Jesus Christ. So you could be comforted with the same comfort we've experienced. Listen, it's harder to give comfort when you haven't gone through something that someone else has gone through. But when you have, you can say, this is how the Lord brought me through this. But to do that, guess what? You have to go through the trial first. I want to be in the ministry. I want to serve God. I feel called. You just signed up for sufferings, bro. That's how it is. That's how it is. Not trying to scare you off, but that's just the truth of it. I want to serve Jesus. Good. Lord, can we sit on your right hand on your left? Can you be baptized with the cup I'm about to be baptized with? And those jokers are, of course, yeah, we can. He's like, yeah, you will. (laughs) James beheaded. John dipped in oil. Exiled to Patmos. Great things. Jesus said, the way up in my kingdom is down. Ananias, verse 17, he went his way. I love his obedience. And he entered into the house and putting his hands on him, he said, these are some of the most touching words of all of scripture. Brother Saul. Ananias recognized Saul as a believer. Do you remember the first time somebody recognized you as a believer? (laughs) You? (laughs) How gracious of Ananias to embrace a man that had been killing other believers but had now come to Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you love your brothers and sisters with this kind of mercy and grace? No matter what they've done or where they've come from, that you embrace them as a brother or sister? Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto you in the way as you came, he has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Again, Paul already had the Holy Spirit living inside of him because the Spirit comes the moment we believe. This was the baptism of the Spirit for boldness to do the ministry that he was called to do. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. It's a medical term to describe for pieces of skin that fall off. It felt like there was skin there that fell away. And he received a sight forthwith or immediately and he arose and he was water baptized then. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then he saw certain days with the disciples that were at Damascus. And so here we see Ananias, not the pastor or deacon, but just a brother, baptizing leading, praying to be healed, praying to receive the Holy Spirit. Sounds kind of different than a whole top-down church ministry, doesn't it? God can use you to do any of those things as well. And immediately we find Saul in fellowship with other believers, how important it is for us to be in fellowship with other believers for our spiritual growth. That was Paul's introduction to his walk with the Lord, hanging out with other believers. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to close with this series of verses. Saul progresses in his life from Pharisee to murderer, now to brother. Eventually, he would be called a teacher in the church of Antioch. And then lastly, an apostle or the apostle to the Gentiles. And Saul saw that progression of God's mercy and grace as a pattern for all of us. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, Paul says these words, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, a violent, insolent man. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. If you think you're a worse sinner today, that title's already been claimed. Paul, chief of sinners. So guess what? How be it, verse 16, for this cause, this is why he rescued me. This is why he showed me mercy. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the Lord can show mercy to you, amen? He loves you immensely. And no place that you've run is too far. No attitude you've had, no crime that you've committed is too much that he will not forgive, that he will not save and also desire to use you. Jesus said, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. And by that, he meant those who understand what they've been forgiven of, love the Lord deeply for it. And Saul would eventually be responsible for the spread of the gospel into Asia Minor and Southern Europe. And he would give us one third of the New Testament. Saul would tell the church at Corinth that everything he did was because Jesus's love for him held him firm to that task. Are you aware of how much Jesus loves you? Of what he's forgiven you of? Listen, don't waver in the task that God has set before you. He is faithful and he will finish what he starts. God is still working and he will do whatever it takes to break through the noise and our own stubbornness. In his love and grace, he gently draws us back to him. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.